Will the global economic and market recoveries chart a V, a U, a W, or that Nike swoosh-shaped recovery from the coronavirus crisis? Or will we take a completely different course? We'll explore those scenarios as we speak today. Hey guys, welcome to episode 11 of Delta, the fixed income podcast brought to you by the International Business of Federated Hermes. Um, Like all investors out there, we've been grappling with the speed and scale of the impact of this pandemic on societies, on economies and markets. Um, We always start this podcast with a sort of contextual quote on ITRAX crossover, which as you know, is the European High Yield CDS Index. When we spoke last time, we were at about 700 basis points. The wides that we've achieved to date were 707 basis points. We tightened back into as tight as 422 basis points post that Fed announcement. And uh, we are now back out again at 507 basis points, having seen that sort of short squeeze and markets give back and fade a little. There's been lots of discussion about the severity of this uh, crisis and the impact on economies and markets, and also a lot of discussion around the duration of that and how it will play out. And um, we wanted to have a little discussion about you know, what, this, what this recovery will look like. But before we dive into that in detail, let's recap what we discussed last month on the episode 10, when I was joined by Stefan Michel, who talked to us really about how the coronavirus uh, was hitting markets at that time. And we'll just briefly go to what Stefan said in closing at that time now. I really think this is going to be not a snap back to the previous levels, but a much more a longer protracted uh, uh, pattern, which will look more like a U than a V. Uh, you can, of course, get into all the conversations that, you know, could completely collapse and just be an I or, or never come back up and be an L. But I actually think it will be a U, but the U is really made of lots of little Ws in its shape. Okay, guys, so welcome back to episode 11. And today, expanding on that topic that Stefan referred to are three members of the Federated Hermes team. Alex Knox, who's a portfolio manager in the US small and mid-cap equity team. Neil Williams, who's our senior economic advisor. And Johan Murray, who's our head of investment. So thank you very much, the three of you, for joining us today. I'm going to start with you, Neil, if you don't mind and ask you to set the scene by telling us what economists think the road ahead will look like. So give us the sort of consensus view, please. Well, I think what's been noticeable so far is uh, are the inconsistencies or maybe dislocations between uh, certain um, risk assets uh, and also the macro. Um, For example, um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, we saw uh, on the same, in the same week as the Dow had had its best run since 1938, over a 16 million Americans have lost their jobs. So not surprisingly, uh, there are different uh, facets to this. Uh, the consensus for economists gradually seems to be moving in the direction of where equities are. In other words, uh, the consensus now seems to be a fairly neat V-shape, whereas we get a rather large hit this year in hard macro terms, uh, and then things to uh, almost make up for that in 2021 alone. I'm, I'm a little less optimistic than that. It seems to me this is a demand and a supply hit, and it's going to take time uh, for that uh, supply impact 
to, to come back to us. So rather than a V on the macro side, I'm looking for something more similar to an extended W, a U, or if things do get protracted, uh, maybe um, an L tick shape, in which case we're back to the 1930s, unfortunately. So may, may I just sort of replay that back to you? In essence, what you're saying is, at this point in time, you think markets are getting ahead of themselves and moving far, faster than underlying macroeconomics would be suggesting. Yes, I do. And it seems that markets may be rightly, uh, for example, in equity world, are looking two to three quarters ahead and perhaps uh, anticipating um, either um, a fairly imminent end to lockdown uh, or uh, at least uh, the worst effects from this tragic virus uh, petering out. In which case, I guess it makes sense for markets to move ahead of the macro, but the macro doesn't move quite that quickly. Uh, if you believe that there'll be a number of sectors for which flows won't be quite the same again. Um, I'm thinking in particular of, of the services sector, uh, where maybe those lost flows are not quickly replaced. And when services accounts for up to three quarters of most advanced economies, uh, then it seems to me that markets really are running ahead. Uh, of where macro recovery may be. The good news, at least, is that central banks and governments have been far more spirited this time uh, than they were at the similar stage in 2008. Okay, Neil, before we move on to that uh, central bank and government intervention, maybe just summarise what we think the hit to GDP has been and what your projections are of those hits to GDP. Um, Let's, let's put markets to one side for now, but just talk about macroeconomics. Well, I think we, we can't ignore when policy institutions like the IMF talk about world growth uh, this year, um, having flipped from their previous expectation of up 3% uh, to now down more than 3%. And various private sector institutions now looking for double digit hits to this second quarter uh, GDP numbers. Even China, and I say even because of course, in this pivotal year for Chinese growth objectives, uh, China will be loath to admit the full impact of this hit. And of course, the latest numbers we ha we've had are fairly eye-watering uh, in terms of the first recorded uh, hit to GDP in China, 10% or so quarter on quarter um, since, the, since modern day records have begun. Uh, so GDP being a lagging indicator itself uh, is down. But what surprises me even more has been the fairly severe hit to the labour market thus far. Uh, for economists who've been around like myself, uh, we, we tend to think of the jobs data as being a lagging indicator running behind output. This time round, of course, the US unemployment numbers have been, have been quite severe and uh, it's likely we'll have an, an around 13% unemployment figure coming out of the US uh, by June. Uh, so I'm not so sure that the initial early hit to jobs is going to be as quickly recouped as some of the optimists believe. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in some more detail when we talk to Alex in a second about the hit on, on the US economy, corporates and individuals. Uh, but before we move on from there, important for us to state for investors that here we're talking about sort of broader market indicators when we're talking about what's happening in markets and what's happening in economies. Below the surface, there's a lot happening as well on a sector by sector basis. And as you rightly point out, Neil, the services sector is probably the one that you could point to and say, you know, that can't possibly look like a V. But before we dive further into that, and, and I do need to come back to you on the stimulus measures, maybe if I could turn to you, Johan, 
and ask you where you think we are in terms of the phases of this crisis. You've talked about that a little internally uh, amongst the team. Maybe let our listeners know where you think we are. Sure. So I think it's important to, first of all, remember the context of what we're dealing with here, which is uh, a pandemic crisis has delivered an exogenous shock to uh, the economic and financial system. So it's come from outside and we have to see everything in, uh, in that context. To my mind, there are going to be three clear phases of this. Uh, we're through phase one. That's the initial shock. Inevitably, you had market capitulation and a huge, massive, unprecedented policy triage response. Uh, second phase is around uh, digesting what's happened and trying to get a hold on the consequences. So we should expect some sort of second round effects. Um, then um, I'm expecting, or I believe that we're currently in the, the middle of a, whatever you would like to call it, a false dawn, a bit of a dead cat bounce, but uh, clearly a rally in risk assets. I think there'll be further consolidation still to come before we, at some point, driven by what happens with the virus, with the pandemic crisis, we get to the last phase, which is post-virus and is the recovery. And that then is all about thinking about the longer term outlook and how any changes or fractures that have arisen because of what we've been through alter the way that we do things going forward. Yeah, that's great, you And I think one of the things that you were touching on there in terms of the, the forward-looking perspective, markets are, as Neil rightly pointed out, kind of saying things things are heading back to where they were, other than any market that's associated with uncertainty. The volatility market is one that we often talk about on this podcast, and the VIX is still above 40 as we speak. So that has not recovered. 40 is, is a level that, you know, for the last decade had, had not been touched. Yeah, it's well down from where we were just a couple of weeks ago. But we have still a lot of uncertainty out there. I think it's important that uh, market participants and uh, listeners and investors understand that that's still out there. You just have to look a little bit harder to find that uncertainty. Coming back to you, Neil, policy response. I've been staggered. There have been days where I've been sitting at my desk and thought, wow, that's huge. And the market reaction has also been huge. I've been blown away by it. Just talk me through what we've seen and give me your sense of, um, I, I guess, a year ago, we, we were discussing whether they had anything left to do. They clearly have done a lot from there. Yes, and it's just as well. And I think this is one impressive element from the authorities we've seen so far. They really have been prepared to, to use up what uh, limited gunpowder they had on the monetary side fa fairly quickly. I suppose the question now is um, how much more powder uh, do they have in in the back in their back pocket? I mean, just looking down the list, the big four central banks have between them either cut interest rates back down towards the floor, uh, or those, the Bank of Japan and the ECB that already had negative interest rates, have uh, have shown a bit more flexibility uh, on their asset purchases. The Fed has been the test case once again. It has spread its QE net far wider, I think, than many of us uh, would have expected. Uh, it's not just now offering unlimited, uncapped vanilla QE, Treasuries and uh, MBS, of course, which it ran in the 2008 crisis, uh, but also now, of course, um, widespread purchases of corporates, including under certain conditions, uh, so-called falling angels. Uh, the Bank of Japan, well, it's still targeting a 0% yield on its 10-year JGB. And this is in the world's biggest 
government bond market. And to achieve that, it's prepared to, of course, carry on using as much QE as it needs. And let's not forget, we're now entering the 22nd year where Japan has been running QE. The ECB at over 100 billion euro per month is now buying more assets than it did even in its own Eurozone crisis. And the Bank of England trying desperately to avoid visibly uh, negative nominal bank rate for fear of stoking up the housing market uh, is also adding a little bit more QE in inverted commas, 200 billion. I'm sure there, there will be more. Uh, and also uh, buying, of course, uh, corporates. So between them, um, what limited monetary firepower there was really is being spent. It can't be done by itself. It does need now push from the other direction, the fiscal direction. And albeit at different speeds, we are seeing some movement there. I, I would say politics in the background with some big elections coming in the US this year, Germany next year, Japan next year, or provide their own spur for governments to act. Uh, but so far, we are seeing, albeit at different speeds, uh, greater fiscal spending, with a legacy, of course, being mounting government debt. Great, Neil. Thank you very much for that. And and some focus there on the US. And, and it's important that we do sort of calibrate that with the fact that the US numbers in terms of confirmed cases and deaths are are ahead of any other geography in the world. But of course, also that US markets dominate uh, world financial markets for the purposes of, of this discussion. Um, the Fed had done much to try to make sure the technicals, the, the, the pipe work was working okay. But then that Thursday before the Easter break made large announcements about what they were prepared to do by way of intervention into capital markets. At the same time, the US government has been talking about fiscal approach. And this is where Alex, I need to come to you and talk to you about you know, what the Fed and the US government have done and how that's feeding through to small and mid cap companies in the US. You, we've talked about this on, on our morning calls on a number of occasions. And you've provided a lot of really interesting insight. What do you think is happening out there? Are the companies getting what they need? What, what's your sense? You know, you've had the 500 billion direct payments to households in two tranches of 250 billion and then additional support measures uh, originally up to 500 billion for small businesses, um, which, you know, included uh, th 350 billion um, directly to the small and medium sized business sector. And when you think of, you know, that 25% of the small and medium sized companies hold fewer than 13 days of cash buffer in reserve, and they also represent a significant a disproportionate share of new hiring over any cycle. Um, you know, that figure was fairly substantial. However, it was subsequently raised by a further 250 billion to total 600 billion. Uh, and the expansion included, you know, contractors and the more gig economy areas. And that just, you know, um, underlined the willingness of the government to, to underwrite all of this and and then the questions became you know well how how long is this expected to um what's the what's the mechanism and how long is this expected to pan out and you know the speed of this again um you know it's, it, these two packages were rolled out you know 11 weeks after the first uh death was reported in china whereas to put that into context the great financial crisis took took us uh, almost two years to roll out 
uh, a smaller package even. Um, and the mechanisms by which this uh, was rolled out was twofold largely. One was tariff reliefs for the small and medium-sized businesses for 90 days, giving them temporary liquidity. And then, um, so that was fairly quick to be rolled out because those numbers, th those details for those companies were already on file, so they could be sent a rebate. And then the second element was the Paycheck Protection Program, which for small businesses themselves represented a sort of free gift, almost too good to be true. Um, and, you know, when you looked at the details of this, um, although the caveats are it's a fairly blunt instrument, uh, and obviously some will get delayed or go into the wrong place, but it was a technical loan with very low thresholds. For example, um, they didn't take, they weren't going to take into any consideration any prior loans that a, that a um, small business would have or an owner of the business, such as auto loans. All they would have to do to access this uh, would this funding would be able to say that they feel impacted. There were no no collateral for those loans either, um, and the covenants, no covenants either. So it would convert to a grant, provided you could produce evidence to the effect that you supported payroll expenses. And again, the quantum of that was, you know, um, the amount of the loan, you were supposed to uh, calculate your monthly paycheck and then multiply that by two and a half, which sort of squares with the, um, you know, timeline of lockdown, which was purported to be roughly two and a half months. Um, you consider that 30 million small businesses in the US, of which 6 million are not sole traders, i.e. they employ more than one person and therefore have a payroll. You know, you can sort of divide, you can do a very rough back of the envelope calculation, 350 billion divided by the 6 million, uh, you get to about 60,000 per business, which is a fairly substantial amount. Um, and the mechanism for this was interesting as well. You, you, It was special purpose vehicles levered up to enable um, the government to buy the loan assets and what you would do if, as a small business was go to your local community bank, not, not large cap bank, um, even if you didn't have a relationship or you, um, and they will send you a link. Um, now the people sort of did the math and, and realized that it was also a first come first served loan stroke grant and therefore there has been enormous demand unsurprisingly and it took a whole week to apply for some businesses with repeated crashing of websites um so you know the delay has been there but not you know it's still relatively quick when you consider the speed of the of the lockdown and the the policies that the um uh, government have been you know dimin uh, damping down gdp growth rather than uh, for example, trying to encourage GDP growth. That's that's really great and very insightful, Alex. So on the ground, the companies that you're looking at and focusing on, how, how do they look now? Is it, are there liquidity needs for now dealt with or are they concerned about, you know, what's going to happen in a month and a half? Yeah, so, I mean, there was a focus on the, the higher risk um, corporate leverage and, um you know, you did see a an underperformance on the stock market of any company that had any level of debt whatsoever. Um, and of course, we did we did um, have conversations with a few of our portfolio companies, which will uh, no, there's absolutely no doubt that covenants will be breached. And they were currently in discussions with the banks. One or two of them withdrew from acquisitions and um, 
most of them stopped any share buybacks uh, and prioritizing workforce payroll and um, you know the sort of safety of their employees um, but the, you know the kinds of businesses that we have been trying to invest in in our portfolio are, are those with high barriers to entry and slightly unfashionably perhaps over the last decade of QE, free money. You know, our portfolio companies tend to have low debt levels. So we saw less of this than than um, the rest of the markets. On the whole, I think, um, you know, the uh, concern from a liquidity point of view and uh, was, was alleviated over the last couple of weeks. Great. Thank you, Alex. And, and coming back to you, Johan, what are you thinking about how investors should approach markets now? Um, Alex spoke to you a little about you know, what's happening for companies within her portfolio. But as you all have seen, you know, the really big guys in the US are already well beyond their previous all-time highs. So there seems to be some you know, confidence there that we're on the right path towards recovery. What are you thinking more broadly about portfolio composition? Yeah, I think that's right. So I think for a, a couple of technical reasons uh, that underpin this current rally around asset allocation and uh, and then more generally the behavior of algorithms. I think our answer to what investors should be looking at is uh, multifaceted in the sense that they're in the short term, we, we know that, uh, that, that a, an unprecedented amount of support has been provided. Uh, but I would still err on the defensive side, thinking about uh, liquidity and flexibility in my portfolio. But if I'm if I have if I'm able to take a longer term view, then I can afford to stay in illiquid assets and get that illiquidity premium. Um, I probably also want to think about yield. If if Neil is right about long term interest rates remaining incredibly low then investors are going to be super hungry for yield again. Uh, dividends come back into their own. Uh, and as Alex mentioned, many have been cancelled. And of course, buybacks, Alex also referred to them. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that buybacks have underpinned the last couple of years of bull rally to a huge extent. There will be opportunities too. There always are. Whenever you get dislocations for a patient capital there will be opportunities that come from those dislocations. And uh, uh, again, long-term investors will have the ability to uh, hold on to their cash and, and use it wisely when those appear. Any sectoral insights, Johan? I mean, it strikes me that you know, this was a, a nightmare scenario for credit investors in many respects. But one of the respects in which it was really, really tough for credit investors is they normally use diversity as uh, as a shield against the the smaller crises that just ebb and flow their way through Alex's market because we might have a couple of defaults, but actually there will only be one or two sectors that, that get affected. This one feels like it's you know, highly correlated across sectors. Are there sectors you feel particularly um, look good here or sectors that you would be particularly careful about. And then I'm going to come and ask you the same, Alex, in terms of what you're seeing in terms of actual performance sector by sector. Um, I, I might let uh, Alex uh, dive into the uh, into the sectors that she is finding attractive. And I think the ones which are uh, unattractive are, are fairly obvious. So anything in travel, tourism, uh, consumer, I suspect, is, is having an extraordinarily tough time. 
and it may not yet be time to get back into those. I think also, um, just in terms of dispersion, I would be focusing very carefully on uh, what I would call zombie companies. So those, uh, I'd be looking to avoid companies where uh, their historically their earnings has, uh, or their cash has uh, struggled to uh, pay their interest payments, and um, I think that um, the, the problems that arise from that will come even more into focus um, as this crisis bites. Turning to you, Alex, uh, Jorn was very kind to you there by asking you for the for the sectors that you think will perform best as we come out of this crisis. You want to have a go at that one. So um, the sectors we look at is slightly different to that of the S&P and, and um, the Russell 2500, which is the bottom 10% of the market, which we follow has fallen 24% year to date compared to the S&P, which is down, I think, about 11.5% year to date. So our um, area of the market has underperformed by 13%, largely due to the sort of domestic impact from um, small and medium-sized businesses. And the uh, the um, energy and REITs, for example, fell furthest and fastest together with uh, financials. Um, and obviously, the leisure sectors um, underperformed in that context. However, you know, we didn't see that in our portfolios because we didn't have exposure to many of those. For example, you know, we don't, we didn't have, we were underrepresented in leisure and gaming um, and retail stocks, uh, retail stores. Um, we, we've believed that the US has been understored for some years and obviously this will accelerate that trend. Um, and energy, again, we find it difficult to find businesses with enough scale uh, to generate the bargaining power or barriers to entry that we seek in our in our investment approach. So um, the the area where we did have exposure was uh, is financials, which are around twenty percent of our market, um, where we have we'll still prioritise the strength of the balance sheet and the business model, um, and try to find businesses which have uh, low leverage and so you know going into the downturn those businesses did well except for those which have um, had uh, exposure to the falling interest rates uh, and I suppose it's worth picking out the small and mid-cap banks which are sort of um, you know they are not they're not bad actors this time round um, they haven't been making poor loans, and this time they're very much a part of the mechanism by which the financial distress can be alleviated, both for households and for small businesses. Um, valuations uh, are approaching 0809 kind of recession levels or at that level, and yet the capital um, capital levels are much much higher. You know, you're looking at um, tier one capital ratios in mid-teens rather than high single digits during the last downturn. Uh, the credit quality has been good and the, the kind of companies that you would pick in that area um, are the higher quality uh, management teams with good track records of managing credit through even the last cycle um, and have well diversified loan books, sticky deposits um, and 
not exposed to the structurally poorer areas of the market, such as mortgage-backed securities, um, and they've got liquidity so that they can mitigate any downward pressure on net interest margins um, by being part of the growth uh, and sponsoring that growth for the small and medium-sized businesses um, coming out. Oh, and I should so probably say as well that they are currently still paying dividends. Um, now, obviously, there may be some caveats to that, but that is a, a signal as to their um, uh, confidence, I suppose, in the in the um, outlook. Yeah, two points we've discussed. First is that obviously European banks have been told not to pay dividends. Um, but to continue to pay coupons. The second thing that we've discussed, and, and Neil and, and Johan and you have all addressed this point, is that the, there's a transmission mechanism uh, which central banks and governments need to employ, and that's likely to, at least in the first instance, be using the pipework that's already in place while they wait to find a more targeted solution. It does strike me that if your transmission mechanism is local banks, it would be hard for those local banks not to get some kind of support. So. Yeah, I, I'm particularly interested in that trade. Before we try to wrap up, and, and we set ourselves the target today to really discuss whether we'd see a V, a U, a W, um, what what does, I'm going to ask you in this one, what makes this crisis different from previous downturns? I, I think back to the most recent you know, it doesn't feel like a crisis now, but the fourth quarter of 2018, followed by the first quarter of 2019, we wrote and we've spoken about the fact that there was almost a perfectly symmetrical down in markets and then back in markets, almost exactly the same things that went down started first in terms of the way they came back up. Um, what makes this different from what we've experienced previously, Johan? Gosh, I, th I think in many ways this is unlike anything we have uh, seen before. Uh, you yourself have referred to uh, a period of unprecedented uncertainty, and I think that is that's the key here. We're we're sort of used to dealing with financial crises, but it's uh, quite rare that you get something that's come from outside of the financial and economic system, which is having a, a direct impact. Um, we, we know that. The you know there has been the stimulus which will replace earnings and income in the short run, but you know the economic activity that should have been taking place, of course, isn't either. Um, how, how else does it differ? We need uh, we need an answer from uh, the medical community, and it's that medical treatment uh, ahead of the discovery of the vaccine, which I think is going to determine the the trajectory of our economy probably a little bit more than monetary and fiscal policy in the longer term. Yeah, I'd, one other thing uh, specifically focused on the difference between this and what we saw fourth quarter 2018, first quarter 2019, which was an exceptional opportunity to buy the dip, is that we are already in a credit cycle. You know, we've seen defaults. We've seen bankruptcies and we've seen defaults. So this, this crisis hasn't been with us for long. But this being a fixed income podcast, we should point out there have been defaults. There's also been a huge wave of downgrades and downgrades occur more rapidly than upgrades. And there have been a huge number of draws on revolving credit facilities. Those same banks that Alex and I were talking about just a few minutes ago have um, grown in terms of their balance sheet size without necessarily improving in terms of their 
performing loan ratios. So I think that feels quite different from anything we've seen in the last few mini crises, you know, and, and, and it does feel like we're going through at least a mini credit cycle. Do you, do you feel like we're going through a proper credit cycle? Does it feel that way yet? Yeah, I think it, I think it does. I, I, I don't think you can, uh, you know, expect that having the high yield market virtually closed for a period of time is going to result in anything except uh, a full blown credit cycle. And as you said, I think it's interesting uh, to reflect on what we've had in the past. Um, we maybe haven't had anything quite like this, but we do have a little bit of experience of defaults. And we know, for example, that we are in a, in, in a time of light covenants. So the, the chances of recovery in some of those situations uh, have changed from 2008, 2009 um, to, to quite a degree. So again, it's a little bit tricky to, um, to try and draw too much upon our past experience. Yeah, I guess in, in making the slight bull case for a U or a W or, or, or if you're feeling acutely bullish, a V rather than an L-shaped recovery, I guess credit cycles normally mean, you know, credit quality deteriorates, we start to see bankruptcies, defaults, but you also get that turbocharger event uh, of banks retri- retracting slightly from their lending and you know becoming much more punitive in terms of the way in which they will lend and charging much more for the lending that they do. We haven't really seen that yet, and we've certainly seen a lot of central bank intervention to try and make sure that doesn't occur. So before we wrap up, I, you know, I, I ought to point out that I don't see that happening that much anywhere within the markets that we survey in terms of uh, fixed income yet. Um, so I'm going to ask each of you um, to stick to the rules and you know give us your opinion and and you know don't sugarcoat it. Just give us your opinion and tell us why you think this. To just nail the colours to the mast and tell us what you think the, this recovery will look like. Uh, start with you, Neil, if you don't mind. In terms of shape, is it a V, a U, an L, a Nike swoosh? Which which one is it? In terms of in terms of the macro recovery, it seems to me that we are we are looking but we are looking at best at a W, depending on the speed at which this thing can be um, addressed, um, and on the hope there are no second and third effects down the line that we can't expect. Um, somewhere between that W and that L, because let's let there is a silver lining. The silver lining is that we've never had it so loose. We can't quite say we never had it so good, but never had it so loose in terms of the overall policy mix. Our analysis was pointing to negative nominal rates in the US and the UK even before the crisis, and it's more so now. And the final thing, this is a legacy thing, given the stimulus is being driven by QE and thereby debt, it's very difficult to see authorities reversing, uh, scaling back in any way the size of this debt when the good times come back. So it seems to me we're, we're little more than halfway through our own era of cheap money. Thank you, Neil. Um... Alex? Um, well, if you want me to nail my colours to the mast, I'm going to go for a, which is not that much outside the equity consensus, but a, a sort of curly V, which um, is a kind of old fashioned looking V, where the V has a sort of tail on it, which is lower than the, uh, than the top of the first half of the V, if you see what I mean. I can see it in my mind. It looks like a Greek letter to me. And that's largely because of two reasons, I guess. 
Um, firstly, that um, the consumer, you know, is 65% of GDP in the US. The scale of the stimulus package um, and the speed of which it has been, you know, deployed together with uh, the lifting of lockdowns, you know, in most economies around the world being talked about, even if um, it takes a little bit longer. Um, and then combined with the fact that the, the cash that has been uh, given to the householders and businesses should shore up that unemployed, those, you know, alarming unemployment and GDP figures, the market will probably look through that. And, and I guess I'm probably a victim of that too. Um, they will all go out and spend that um, and, you know, you could have made the argument that the, the world was over levered uh, back in 2011, 2012, and that's still the case. Uh, it just seems to be that and you know, never, never paid back. Now, there's a bit of a concern over that, you know, in an economy where where you can take out debt and never pay it back. But that's for another day, I guess. That's that's Alex getting in a dig against the fixed income guys. But she joins our, <laughs> our podcast there. Thank you, Alex. Uh, and, and Johan? So I'm I'm going to stick with uh, Niels W. Far be it from me to to argue with him on the macro side. I I think ultimately uh, that the the markets cannot act independently of the broader economy, and Western Western economies, to my mind, are still in in a sort of medically induced coma at this point. And I think the uh, although that there are reasons behind having some optimism around this rally. Uh, ultimately, I think there's a degree of over-optimism still embedded in the market, and the scale of the recovery required to justify that optimism is still not there, particularly when emerging markets yet haven't really been uh, 100% involved. Um, consumer caution is going to be, I think, prolonged far beyond what the stock market is currently allowing for. And that, to that mind, I think we still have a bit of consolidation to go yet. Uh, in markets before we see a recovery uh, at some point next year. So um, as you listeners know, uh, every month we have a, a question in. We call it all options on the table. Uh, the question that came in was that valuations on high yield seem extremely attractive. Is it time to go and buy beta and go long across the asset class? I think to my mind, it doesn't feel like the time to be buying beta. We've, we've more than 50% retraced the sell-off. Uh, it does feel like there are uh, opportunities out there, but it's best to be discriminating in the way in which you attack that problem rather than just going and buying beta from here. Um, I guess the um, danger of not going and being long beta is that you could see further central bank intervention. But one of the things that makes me feel more confident about making the statement that now is not the time to jump on the beta bus is that actually central banks will be watching markets and saying markets actually look like they're finding a bit of a level here. Let's leave them to sort themselves out before we intervene further. But have no doubt central banks are sitting on the sidelines working on what they could do next if we were to see a further deterioration. So I'm going to close by saying thank you very much to all of the participants on the podcast this week. Alex, Neil, and Johan, thank you very much for joining me. I'm going to close with a couple of key takeaways from today. First is that um, this is an exogenous shock on 
uh, economies and on markets, the like of which we've never seen previously. And one needs to look at it through that lens and make sure that one's constantly recalibrating and readdressing what they're doing. I think our three uh, participants today would agree that this doesn't look anything like what we saw in the first quarter of 2019, where we had a vault fast from the Fed, which pretty much meant that we could go back to exactly where they were. And the last thing to say is possibly that initial beta phase may be over, but if Alex's um, Greek letter or, or old-fashioned V comes true, true, this is a time to be looking very, very closely at idiosyncratic risk, to be looking at the sectors that you like, and to be doing what we at Federated Hermes focus most heavily on, which is medium and long-term thinking rather than thinking about what might happen to markets tomorrow. I'm going to close by thanking you for joining us, uh, hoping that you're all safe and that you are coping as well as you possibly can through this crisis. Thank you. Speak soon. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.